and when would I see you joyful? You know, where your face just breaks out in a smile from ear to ear. Perhaps if your team won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, that's not happening this year. Maybe at the birth of a child. Maybe when you see your grandson singing at the school assembly with reckless abandon. You can learn a lot about people by what makes them smile. Sometimes people smile over silly things. Sometimes we have trouble smiling at all. Sometimes we do learn to beam over what is beautiful. So here's the question for you this morning. Does the Lord Jesus Christ and his work make you joyful? I mean, does what he does, who he is, what he brings, does that bring a smile to your face every day? Do Jesus and joy go together? That is the question of Luke chapter 15. The Lord Jesus Christ tells three parables there about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And they all focus on joy. And the context, as usual, is very important. The Lord Jesus Christ has been eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's made the scribes and the Pharisees grumble, we read at the beginning of the chapter. In those days, and still today, you don't just eat with anyone. When you eat with someone, when you break bread with someone, you're giving them a certain level of fellowship and acceptance. Those that you eat with are part of your life. How can the Lord Jesus Christ then eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors those who rob from their fellow Jews, who benefit then the the hated Roman Empire and themselves as well. How can the Lord Jesus Christ sit down and eat with sinners like prostitutes? Doesn't he have any sense of decency? More than that, doesn't he have any sense of God? Of the holiness of God? And so the Lord Jesus Christ tells these three parables. We usually call this last one the parable of the prodigal son. And that's your heading in the ESVs as well. Prodigal though. Do you know what that word means? I think because of this parable we think prodigal means what? The son who was lost and then the son who was found. But no, prodigal actually means wasteful, extravagant, the son who spent everything on nothing. Some then have renamed this parable, instead maybe the parable of the prodigal father, who seems to spend his love on his wasteful son so extravagantly. The parable continues, though it has two parts. It's not just the parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps you could call it better the parable of the two lost sons. Or maybe you could say the parable of the joyful father. Because that joy 
is again at the center of this parable. The joy of restoration and reconciliation. Will that joy be ours? And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to bring. And there are not only prodigals wasting their lives who need to know the joy of their father, there are also older brothers who spend their lives in bitterness and even anger. Older brothers who have their own ideas of God, of religion, of faith. Older brothers who also need to be brought home and reconciled to the Father just as much as the reckless younger ones. And so I put the sermon under this theme. If you know Jesus, you must be rejoicing. Now, first of all, we're going to retell the parable a little bit. But as we do this, I'll try to explain it a little bit more. A man had two sons, and one day the younger son basically says the unsayable, thinks the unthinkable. Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your money. That's really what the younger son is saying. Dad, give me what is coming to me when you die. Give it to me right now so I can do with it what I want, away from you, apart from you, because I don't really want you. I don't want to live near you. In those days, you generally didn't move away from the family farm. You certainly didn't sell part of the family farm. The land was your life. The younger, thought, younger son is doing the unthinkable here. But that's like all of us in our sins, rejecting the life, the home that God has given us with himself, wanting the gifts of God without God, without living in the presence of God. That's at the very heart of our sin. Well, the father does divide his property. He may have had to take quite a financial hit to do that. Then not many days later, the younger son gathers all he has, goes to a far country, and wastes it all. It's, it's maybe not so surprising if you've ever been given a fair bit of money, how fast you can burn through thousands, even tens of thousands of dollars. The Greek word here used for squander, the Lord Jesus Christ uses, has this picture of someone who sort of just scatters their wealth, almost like a farmer sowing his seed at springtime. But this is just sown in such carelessness and thoughtlessness. Money here, money there. Then a severe famine arises, and the son is in desperate need. You would think that with him spending all that money... He might have some friends who can help him out. But clearly, he's not garnered any friends. He's just gathered people around him like himself, users and abusers. Now he's all alone. So he's forced to take a brutal job, especially for a Jew. He's forced to work for a pig farmer. He's so destitute and so poor that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating. The pigs are eating wild carob 
pods kind of, of bean. Not very edible, actually. You can feed them to pigs, though. The son, the son longs to eat what the pigs are eating. The pigs are eating better than he is. Then he comes to his senses. Even my father's servants have more than enough bread. I'm going to go home. And I'm going to tell my father I've sinned against heaven and before you. I've sinned against God. And I've been a terrible embarrassment to the family. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons, but treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this son's first instinct is telling. It's just like us, too. When we begin to realize our sinfulness, I'll go home, but I can't really be home. I'll still keep my distance. Let me try to make it up. I'll work hard. Perhaps the son thinks maybe somehow he can repay his father and restore all he lost. He certainly doesn't think that living on the family farm again as an honored son is possible. And we so often think the same too as sinners. At any rate, he begins to journey home. And then the miraculous happens. While he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Now let's just stop here and unpack these amazing items. The father sees him. The father has never forgotten. The father is on the lookout for the son. His heart still yearns for his son. The father is full of compassion. Well, maybe you can remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Their compassion was key as well. The religion of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes with their view of God, thought very little of the compassion of God. The father has compassion. The father's heart is moved greatly just like God in the Lord Jesus Christ over us sinners and this father runs from a long way off if you know anything about older men in the Middle East they do not run dignified men do not run I mean, have you ever seen the prime minister or the queen, the king, running to someone. It doesn't happen. And to think that this all happens in the sight of the villagers. You lived together in those days. Everyone lived in a tight community. The father doesn't care what others see or hear. He spares his son the great walk of shame. Shuffling through the town, his clothes in tatters, not a shoe on his foot, where everyone gathers at their doors and whispers. The father spares his son that shame and runs to him. And he embraces his son and kisses him. I'm told in those days, there actually was a ritual that would be performed when a wayward son returned home. 
Now, the son would first of all sit outside the home for some time. He would be, you know, told to sort of sit and stew in his juices, waiting for his father. Eventually the father would come. And the father, first of all, would get very angry with his son. And even humiliate the son as he deserved. You've embarrassed our whole family. You expect us to just welcome you back? I'm told that there was a ritual too with a clay pot. A clay pot would be taken and thrown at the son's feet, broken, showing the brokenness that he had caused. There's none of that. The father runs, puts his arms around his son, kisses him repeatedly. You did that, right, in that culture, to show acceptance and joy. The son begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts the son. The son doesn't even get to the part about, make me a hired servant. Bring the best robe, put it on him, he commands. That would probably be one of the father's own robes. Meant you at a place in the family. Put a ring on his hand, also a sign that you belong. Put shoes on his feet. There are Negro spirituals that talk about having shoes. Slaves didn't have shoes. The father wastes no time in showing his son that he is his son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Now the parable could stop here and be a wonderful parable. And it is a wonderful story of exactly what the Lord does for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, this is what we have as sinners. The God who has run out to us. The God who does not hesitate to welcome us back. The God who yearns for us. The God who has great compassion on us in our misery. The God who is not so much filled with anger, but compassion. But remember, this parable was told for a particular reason. Where the leaders are grumbling about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is spending with. So the parable continues. Our attention turns to the older son. He was out in the field, we're told. He is a dutiful son. When he comes near, he hears music and dancing and asks what's going on. It's explained to him. What is his reaction to this party? He's angry. He refuses to go in. In his mind, this just isn't right. The younger son being so welcomed back. His sense of justice, his sense of works and work is too large. And it blinds him to things like compassion and grace and then also joy. But the father, the father who ran out to meet the younger son, also goes out to the older one. 
The father is also concerned for his older son. We need to remember that too. The Lord Jesus Christ loved the scribes and the Pharisees and those like them as well. But the older brother essentially starts up a fight with his dad. In that culture, that's quite an offense. And to do this in public, he is shaming his father just as much as the younger son did. The Pharisees grumbling, quarreling publicly with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's also an affront to God. And the older brother, son, the older brother tells his dad that he's not just fair. He's been a good son, but he's not gotten anything of it, really. Not even a young goat to celebrate with his friends. Interesting, the older brother looks a lot like the younger brother. He doesn't seem too interested in the father either. He also talks about parting with his friends just like the younger son did in the far country. But when this son of yours came home, notice his language, son of yours, not my brother. The older brother does not identify at all with his younger brother. His younger brother could sort of be a, a different species. You know, religious people often think like that. They think they have nothing in common with the wild sinners of the day. Beware when you have that kind of language as well. This son of yours, he points fingers as if those fingers should never be pointed at him. He rubs his brother's sins in his father's face. The son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Isn't it interesting that that is not mentioned earlier in the parable? Elder brothers have a habit of magnifying the sins of others. They love to point fingers. So look at the terrible things that they have done. Implying, of course, that they would never do those things. That their sins are hardly sins compared to what others have done. But look at how the father responds. He has every reason to be angry with the public scene the older brother is making. But he too is tender. He shows the same love he did to the younger son. Son, he says. He reminds him of that. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You haven't just been a good son, working for me always, out in the fields. You are with me. That's the father's real joy, to have the son with him. All that is mine is yours. Don't be so consumed with your duty, with being good. Do not forget about the riches that you have. That you, as you have tried to sort of work for me, have completely forgotten. It was fitting to celebrate because your brother was dead and is alive, lost and is found. And then the parable stops. The last scene of this parable is actually missing. The scene where we find out. Well, 
what does the older brother say to all of this? How does he react? How does he respond to his father? That question, of course, can only be answered by the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. Perhaps their hearts will be melted. Perhaps they will join in the joy. Perhaps they will see what the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. Perhaps they will see that they have the wrong view of God. That the Lord Jesus Christ and all he does, he is the running father yearning for his son, for his children, and rejoicing that the lost have finally been found. So now let's zoom out and make some concluding remarks. First of all, let's highlight again, there are two sons, so different, but yet also more alike than you think. The younger son is immoral, the older son is moral. But both of them struggle to have a relationship with the father. The younger son is selfish, the older son is self-righteous but the end result is the same both are alienated from their father both do not enjoy a relationship with the father roughly speaking those are the two types of people that fill this planet two groups apart from the grace of God the immoral and the moral, the selfish and the self-righteous, but both more alike than they realize. And yet, they love to point their fingers at each other. There are the younger sons. They think the older sons are religious prudes, bigots, killjoys. Then there are the older sons. They think the younger sons are obsessed with their pleasures, wild and reckless. But the focus here in this parable really is on the older brother, the scribes and the Pharisees. Would they realize, would we realize who our God is, what our God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Pharisees, they were those that grew up in religious homes. The Pharisees were those who were serious about serving the Lord. Is that not a good thing? They talked about God all the time. They talked about the law of God all the time. Was that not the big lesson that the Israelites in the Old Testament had to learn? That God was serious about obedience And the Pharisees said, yes, we understand. God is serious about obedience. God is the holy God. The Pharisees even talked about sin. And they talked about repentance. But this is the shocking thing. Even though they spoke about sin they still did not know what sin really was. This is the startling lesson that we all need to hear. You can talk about sin. 
but yet still not know what sin really is. The Pharisees understood the holiness of God, but yet they still did not understand their own depravity. The Pharisees thought that their sin was actually sort of small. They could correct their lives themselves through obedience to the law of God. They thought that sin could be overcome just by keeping the rules. And they did not see how distant they were truly from God. That they were just as lost as the wild, immoral ones. It's not just Pharisees, of course. Churches can be filled with elder brothers whose lives are more defined by their own righteousness. Those who thrive on criticizing others, who make it their religious life to feel superior to others, who are hard and graceless because they themselves have not tasted of the grace of God because they do not think they truly need the grace of God. I mean, that's the question for us when we read this parable. Do we understand our need for the grace of God every day again? Do we see the depths of our depravity? Not just the depths of their depravity, the depths of our depravity. And do we see the depths of the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? That God has run out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and put his arms around us and kissed us and given us a place again in his home. A running father is unthinkable. But we have seen more than that. We have seen the Son of God hanging naked on a cross, bearing the shame and the condemnation that we deserve. The older brothers divide the world into two types of people. Really the obedient and the disobedient. Those who understand the holiness of God and those who don't. The sinners and the saints. But that is far too simple. There is a division, yes, into two. But it is more like this. There are those who do not understand the love and the grace of God, who are blind, who are willfully blind to it, because they do not think they deserve it. There are those who can only think, rather, of what they deserve, what they think that they deserve. There are those who understand the holiness of God, yes, but who do not understand that he is also holy 
in his love, in his compassion, in his mercy and grace. There is a hell which is filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because those in hell are angry with God. Angry with what He has done. Angry with His plan of creation. Angry with His plan of salvation. And then there is heaven. Eternal life. Eternal life is first of all a party, a celebration. A place filled with the joy of the Father in restoring the lost. Joy that in Jesus Christ the dead are now alive, the lost have been found. Heaven, eternal life, is that place filled with awe and wonder. Where yes, the holiness of God is everything. That holiness of God blinds us and overcomes us. That he has loved a sinner like me and like you. Heaven is that place of awe over what God has done after what sinners have done to him. And angels and humans alike share in that awe. It has been said about grace. That if you haven't found grace amazing, you haven't found it yet. Every Christian, every day, should be amazed. You should strive to wake up in the morning with this. Not just thankful for the days that God gives you, but in amazement that God loves you a sinner in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has loved you so greatly despite your hatred of Him. You wanted Him dead. But He has given you life. Those are the two directions in life. Bitterness and gnashing or wonder and joy. On which path are you? Amen.